Okay, so shall we start? My name is Carrie Thompson. I'm producing this podcast episode. I will just say I've had a lot of jobs. Like I was a dishwasher at my dad's summer theater. I worked in a costume shop. I sold pastries. I was a secretary. I worked at a... Do you want to introduce yourself? Yes. Hello. My name is Erin Slomsky-Pritz. I'm a producer on Sanctuary Lives. Let's see. I've had one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Since graduation, I've had ten different jobs, and I would say three careers. My name is uh, Cameron Trutavian. Uh, I'm 24. Uh, I'm just closing on two years out of college, so I feel like I'm almost a little too young to play this game. Except that it's not really a game. It's more of an unscientific study. Today's episode is about declining job tenure in this country, an increase in job hopping by workers, and a long-term shift in the relationship between employers and employees. And we wanted to start with ourselves. Yeah, I was trying to count as well. I think in good faith, this is my first career. This is the first thing I've really invested in. But I have had definitely a number of jobs. Uh, I kind of was a camp counselor for a while, and I started doing kind of little writing gigs through college. Um, I was a travel feature writer for a summer. I was a oil spill preparedness planner, remotely, but for Alaska, which was rather interesting. Um, I had a stint as a health and safety monitor for parks. And then I was a foreign language teacher for eight months overseas. And now I am a podcast producer. So, it, I don't know, I was thinking jobs. I was, I was struggling with how many actually. I think I haven't got enough runtime yet. Runtime is actually a big part of this equation. Because if you've been in the workforce for a while and are now in your 40s or 50s, your runtime and your job count is going to be quite different from the generations that surround you. Aaron is in her 30s. Cameron is in his 20s, but they have already as many jobs as Carrie, who is a generation older. If you go back, um, you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, people who were born in the 50s and sort of became... What economist Timothy Taylor is getting to is this. The amount of time people have been with their current employer has been gradually sinking over time. And we wanted to find out why and what it means for the future of work in this country. I'm Ken Stern, the host of this podcast. And I've had about a dozen jobs in my life. I worked as a lawyer, I worked on political campaigns, and I worked at NPR. But as it turns out, people like me who entered the workforce in the 80s will have had far fewer jobs on average by the time they retire than people starting their first jobs today. And those entering the workforce right now are likely to experience what is now being called by some the 25-job career. Some hate this idea. I hope that I would never have to have 15 or 20 jobs. It's exhausting to me, you know, having to go to a new job, learn a new system, uh, you know, learn how you fit with with a group of people again. Um, So that's not something that I would look positively on at all. Others love it. The sooner you start building a foundation so that you can successfully change careers, the sooner you're in it. You know, we often think about the risks of change, but we don't think so much about the risks of not changing. And the risk of not changing is that time is passing you by. The concept of the 25-job career makes me a bit uneasy. Not for myself, but for my 14-year-old son who will, I very much hope, enter the workforce at the end of this decade. 
I already know that he is likely going to work longer than me, perhaps by necessity, hopefully by choice. Should we think of his work world as one of uncertainty and disruption, characterized by technology displacement and declining employer loyalty? Or should we think of it as a world of choice, where technology and worker scarcity will enable more job options, more learning opportunities, and more personal autonomy to pursue multiple interests over the contours of longer careers? It's a complex question, but from the Stanford Center on Longevity, Century Lives is here to start the conversation. On this season of the podcast, we're exploring what we want out of work and what it means to have more meaningful careers over a longer lifespan. Today, we're going to talk to economists, job seekers, a headhunter, a best-selling author. We'll even listen in on a career counseling session as we follow the trend of more jobs in less time, compressed and intensified by one of the biggest upheavals in the job market in decades. A record 4 million people quit their jobs in April. 4.5 million Americans quit their jobs in November. A record 4.4 million quit in September alone. In October, another 4.2 million. The Great Resignation, one of the biggest stories of the last two years. It's sometimes referred to as the big quit, which makes sense since the focus has almost invariably been about people leaving jobs. But that's only part of the story because the great resignation is mostly about people changing jobs, finding new employment that might provide better pay or new work skills or more flexible working conditions, or even that elusive better boss. People have been changing jobs in record numbers since the economy started bouncing back at the beginning of 2021. But the great job change, as we might now call it, is not something entirely new, just an acceleration of trends that have been developing for decades. Again, here's economist Timothy Taylor. There were a whole lot of people in 2020 who had a break with their current employer. And so the the data for 2021 isn't out yet, but, but when it comes out, I'm sure there will be a big drop in how long people have been with their current employer as a result of the pandemic. And in a way, that'll be a little bit of an artificial change because some of those people were later able to go back to the same industry or the same background. But But it also um, perhaps reflects uh, a sharper version of something that's been going on for a long time, that I sometimes think with the pandemic that we took a whole lot of change that was happening slowly, like working from home more or talking to our doctors online or different things like that, and we compressed it all (laughs) into a very short period. And similarly, with job tenure, this was a long-term pattern, and all of a sudden we compressed it this switching and changing and different kinds of work into a very short-term period. And so it, it may be the speed of it is different, but the pattern is much the same. So I think we all, that all um, speaks to things that we've observed going on even before the pandemic. But why is that? What What has driven down the um, average job tenure, for, especially for people later in life? Well, there's a couple things going on. I, I think the main thing people tend to talk about is um, that, uh, particularly in the 1970s, um, there was a real tumult in the U.S. economy and in the job market. And if you think about what happened to the number of people who used to have long-term jobs, say, at auto companies or at steel companies or at um, at even in certain government things, uh, there were many people who had just sort of settled into something like that and were really there for the long term. And um, 
and particularly with uh, changes in deregulation and international trade, uh, new technologies coming along, there was enormous disruption at that time. And so you see a big drop-off, particularly in the number of men who had been uh, you know, in a job for a long period of time, and there were fewer people who had that, that status than they had before. Um, so I, I think that was one of the big changes. I think also it's possible to exaggerate a little bit the amount of those changes. Um, there were always a lot of people who uh, were sort of struggling from job to job. You know, people who were perhaps working in, you know, retail sales or a salesman for a company and they had switched between companies. And so sometimes I think we have an odd feeling that, you know, the workforce used to be all people with long-term, you know, settled career jobs. And that was always a, a sizable share, but there was a lot of movement at all times. So, 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 Tim, what, um, how does that trickle down to, uh, you, you teach courses at McAllister and University of Minnesota, how does that trickle down to the psychology of students or people just entering the job market? Do they have different expectations about their careers? Have you observed any sort of changes over time in, in how students think about these things? It's hard to say, and, and I, I guess what I... You know, some of what I observe is I wouldn't claim it's scientific. It's talking to people. It's talking to my own kids who are college age. Um, but what I feel there is a lot of is an almost frantic feeling about what will my job be. Um, there's a sense that the, uh, the employers you might get are not necessarily friendly to you or helping your career, and that the jobs you get... Um, may be short-term because there are no other options, that you aren't able to find that long-term job over time. And so I I hear a lot of that kind of frantic feeling. Um, I, I once read a, a comment from someone who said, uh, you know, in the future, you know, we'll all be our own employer and we'll look for different things and we'll find different ways to sell our job services and we'll sort of, you know, jump from person to person. And and the author was kind of making it sound like that was really a positive thing, like we were in control now. And I was thinking, for most people I know, including my own kids, they don't want to be in control in that way. They don't want to be looking for a new job every six months um, or every two years. They want to find something where if they move, it would be their call, not the employer's call. And where they, the control they have is that they can stay where they are if they want to. Having agency in the career we choose and the jobs we pursue is an important part of this job realignment. Many have viewed the pandemic as an opportunity to reevaluate what it is they want from their lives and their careers. Here's our producer, Aaron Slomsky-Pritz. I've had a lot of jobs and a lot of moments where I feel like I need to reinvent myself in my career. A lot of my 20s, I feel like I worked extremely hard. Work was really central to my life. Um, at some point, I think the idea of um, career being a reflection of me and, and my um, worldview or who I am became important, and I decided I wanted to try radio. Um, and I was in my mid-twenties at that time and really dropped everything, quit my job, and then moved a bunch of times to really chase that dream. I think I'm just in a moment of um, really trying to um, figure out, what, I guess, what the future of my work looks like. I don't know, it's just a really different thing working from home and freelancing than it is to like be in a building with other people and very accidentally... To balance out the freelancing gigs, I started 
working as a pastry chef at a local bakery. And that has been truly a godsend in the pandemic. I don't know how, I, w- I don't think I'd be functional without it. Just to have community, to have, to like be making beautiful things with other people in a place, I feel like has fueled the rest of my work and the rest of my week, even though it's a job. Um, and, and it's so interesting because it doesn't fit neatly into a category. Like I don't, people ask me like, do you want to be a professional baker? Do you have ambition? Do you want to, and it's not about that. It really feels like it is the thing in this, in this moment. It's the thing that allows me to be with other people in a safe way. And I don't, I don't know. I don't have a lot of ambition with it. And maybe I'm also (laughs) in a moment where I'm not feeling very ambitious. Um, And it's really just about feeling good. I think it feels like work for me needs to, like, I need to feel like it's bringing me to life and I care about it. I think that is what is important to me. What I've noticed is this. Across the board, all walks of life, there's this collective feel of this is all we have. That's Jack Kelly, CEO and founder of WeCruiter, a job search network. You know, we have one life, and you, and you see it playing out where, you, you, you know, every day, CNN, you see the death counts, you see the casualties, it's in your face. You realize how precious life is, how fragile it is, how quickly it goes by, and just like that, it could be over. And I think there's been an existential, I don't want to say crisis, but more of really hitting home, like, wow, what am I doing with my life? What am I doing with my work life? Do I want to do the same thing five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now? And for a lot of people, it was resounding no. Like, no, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to put up with a bad boss. I don't want to put up with a a micromanager. I don't want to deal with low pay, long hours and disrespect. And, and I owe it to myself to try to find something where I could pursue meaning. And this is another, another thread, what I've seen, that people are really seeking out meaning and purpose in their jobs. You know, they want to find something that isn't just a paycheck. And they'd even sacrifice money for something where they feel intrinsically of value. That, hey, I'm doing something, I'm contributing to society. At the end of the day, I've, I made my difference in the world. And this is a radical shift. I'm a Gen Xer, and when I went into the, you know, to the business world, into the job world, you didn't think like that. You thought, hey, I got to get a job, go up the corporate ladder, and that's it. Now, it's almost, it's a big shift. I think people, and of all ages, it's not just Gen Zs or younger folks who are doing this. This is across, I'm seeing it, every strata. So we wondered, will this aspirational job hopping across every strata end after the pandemic? Julia Pollack is pretty certain this trend is only going to become more pronounced. She's the chief economist at ZipRecruiter, and as she sees it, there's a possibility that this 25-job career might soon turn into the 30-job career. Remote work has changed everything. For workers in industries where there are lots of remote opportunities, the option set that they are looking at may have grown not just uh, by 50%, but by you know, a thousand percent. What do I mean? Uh, when I was looking for a job back in uh, 2018, and I typed economist Santa Monica, and I set the the search parameters to within five miles on ZipRecruiter, because I didn't want to have to commute and I had young kids. Um, now, because most economists are able to work remotely, I could just type economist at any distance. And you know how many jobs show up? 90,000. So before, there were two jobs that were relevant to me. Now there are 90,000. It's, it's a total game changer. Um, also, 
Here's another thing that remote work does. It has reduced the costs of moving jobs and increased the benefits. So uh, it, let's say you worked in airlines before. There are three major airlines that you might consider working in, but one is headquartered in um, Atlanta and one in Dallas. And so if you were upset in your job and you wanted to move to the next biggest competitor, you would have had to uproot your family, sell your house, you know, move your kids out of their schools. And you what, you know, you, you may have thought that's just, it's just too much of a cost. I have to, you know, be far away from mom and dad. Um, now, if those jobs are remote, it's very easy to move from one company to the only other company in town that does the same thing. You can keep your career. I mean, you can keep your uh, all the skills, the job that you love to do, uh, and get a pay bump, and keep doing the job from the very same desk in the very same chair. The scenarios that Julia Pollock describes are rosy ones. But we know that a system of declining job tenure may be one characterized by both greater personal autonomy or by marketplace disruptions caused by global economic uncertainty, or technology change, or perhaps even a pandemic. And even when the acceleration in job hopping is driven by greater worker choice, there is increased friction in a system that is highly dependent on the employer-employee relationship. Companies may reduce critical training and skills development when they know that their workers will leave. And workers may lose health care and what economists call leakage in their pensions when they change jobs. I asked Timothy Taylor if policymakers are doing enough right now to think about these changes in the job market to support workers in a more transitory economy. I don't think they're remotely close <laughs> to doing what they need to do. Um, the, the general distinction here, again, in, in my little world is what are called passive and active unemployment policies. And a passive policy would be something like paying unemployment insurance. You lose your job, the government sends you a check. And that's sort of the passive response, just to help people over the hump. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm in favor of passive policies. Helping people is a good thing. I'm glad to have, we have unemployment insurance. But it, it is very reactive and it doesn't help much toward moving on toward the next opportunity. Um, if you look at lots of other high-income countries around the world, they spend much more on what we would describe as active policies. And the active policies are the things I was describing before, like uh, having a job center where everybody gets a resume and where everybody does some practice job interviews and where someone tells you how to dress and, and how to get ready for an interview. And they think about your transportation network and you get some counseling on those kinds of things. And, um, and compared to most other high-income countries, the U.S. spends you know, essentially zero on those kinds of things. And uh, it's not clear to me we're helping people grab onto something more solid. We might have to wait a long time for the U.S. government to design the right programs to help us grab onto something more solid. But there are other ways in which sectors of the private economy are already responding to the changing job market by developing new training and certificate programs by the hundreds of thousands and creating more learning opportunities to support longer and more varied careers. Here's Julia Pollock from ZipRecruiter again. It's challenging, and organizations are having to change, uh, and universities and uh educational institutions are being forced to change too. Uh, there has been a, a very, very rapid growth in online skills providers recently, where uh, it's increasingly cheap, convenient, and easy to get 
the skills you need that are directly relevant to uh, a job. Those skills providers work very closely with employers to design the curricula, and uh, they work very closely with with software companies as well um, to to teach people how to use those uh, tools. Um, you know, to, to thinking about things like QuickBooks and Workforce Now and you know ADPs technology, all of those uh, kinds of of platforms that are so key in different jobs. And, uh, and they're working with employers. So employers are increasingly partnering with these companies to provide training. You know, employers don't want to be universities, right? They, they can't. That's not their job. Uh, but they can partner with uh, skills providers uh, to provide those kinds of training to their workers cheaply and quickly. Uh, and the kinds of ways that speak to workers, so through video, through interactive games, because we know now that people don't necessarily learn well in that college setup with a textbook and a piece of paper and a pencil, uh, and, and definitely not throughout the course of their life. Like later on, they need different, different forms of learning. And do you think that's a uh, have you observed that's a, a, a working system? I mean, I think there's something like a million certificate providers in the United States now. Um, do workers know how to navigate all these choices and figure out what's actually valid, what's invalid, what works for them, what has good economic value, which doesn't, what skills they need? It's, it seems like it's a lot, of, a lot on, on workers now. I think it's still very complicated, and uh, we're not yet at a place where you know, there's a website that's a one-stop shop that can show you the value of uh, a certificate in terms of your career options in your location. Uh, we're still kind of far away, uh, but the market is is. Uh, is is going to determine. So these courses don't survive if they can't prove to students that they will help them in employment later. So uh, that's I think that's one thing that's very exciting about about this growth of these online skills providers, uh, because many workers either need to pay for these out of pocket or because employers need to pay for them, um, because you're not able to get student loans quite as easily as you are for a college degree or graduate education. They have to be more directly accountable to the market. But still, longer careers, dozens of jobs. It's a whole lot for a new generation of workers to grapple with. And while we wait for government action, a vibrant industry has begun to emerge to help companies and individuals navigate this new world. It's not a new concept. In 1970, a modest Episcopalian minister named Dick Bowles self-published a job-seeking guide called What Color Is Your Parachute, which has since sold 10 million copies and spawned numerous imitators. And what was Dick Bowles' advice for finding the right job? Basically, you sit down and you look at the times in your life when you were enjoying yourself the most, not only at work, but also in your leisure time and in your educational time. You try to find experiences where you were really turned on because what we've discovered over the years with job hunters is that the more they were enjoying themselves, the more likely the reason they were enjoying themselves was because they were using the skills that they are best at. Bowles' advice is still valid half a century on, and you hear it from a new generation of counselors helping workers successfully navigate our changing world. But I think when you start to take more ownership for your career, for thinking, well, how do I create rather than wait for my career to happen to me? What does that look like? 
That's podcaster and career coach Sarah Ellis. She's thought a lot about how people can tap into the self-awareness necessary to find a job that's right for them. Careers today aren't and shouldn't be a straight line up and to the right. They're now much more of a squiggle. The squiggly career is really the idea now that our careers are characterised by change and uncertainty. It's not now about climbing a ladder where we are following in other people's footsteps or fixed on a future. There is no such thing as a one-size-fits-all career anymore. We are all developing in different directions and there's lots of jobs that we don't know that are going to exist yet and skills that we don't even know that we're going to need. And so I think if we frame our careers as a ladder, it's limiting. Sarah Ellis has built a career around helping companies and individual workers adjust to a new age of declining employment loyalty and greater job choices. We matched her with someone struggling to plan the next step in her career. Hi, Meredith. Nice to meet you. (laughs) Hi, Sarah. It's so nice to meet you. Thank you for doing this. That's Meredith, who asked that we not use her last name. She's 29 and at a crossroads in her career. So perhaps it'd be useful if we started by you describing to me some of the moves that you're thinking about making um, you know, what kind of what's on your mind at the moment where you're thinking about where your career could take you? Yeah, yeah. So I, um, I recently quit my job in uh, November of this past year. Would it be helpful to run through sort of the general trajectory? It's a little bit wonky, but um, we right. live a bit of wonky. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So I, I, um, I studied biochem and English in college. And I thought I was going to go into a biochem PhD for a long time. Realized I didn't like working in labs. Um, sort of flipped the entire, you know, did a big pendulum swing. Ended up doing Teach for America, um, where I taught first grade in a bilingual classroom. I really liked that, but got worried about the burnout. And then I moved to rural Alaska and have done just a million different jobs. Um, everything from commercial fishing to working for the local tribe to running a state house campaign. Um, and then for the past three years, I've been doing nonprofit work and left that job in, in November. And I don't know, it just feels like, like there are just so many options and I don't know how to choose one. And so, <laughs> and have been thinking pretty seriously about going to medical school. But I haven't been able to quite take the full plunge. And so I have been thinking about, you know, how I should be making that decision. What often can be quite helpful, especially when you've done some quite different things, like you say, you've developed in lots of different directions. When you reflect back on all the different roles that you've done, what are the moments that really stand out to you in terms of the things that you've enjoyed the most? Those things that have like really given you energy that you thought, you know, it might have been like a moment or a project or a particular period of time. Yeah, I looking back on the things that I've done that have ended up feeling really good and really fulfilling, they weren't the things that I thought were going to be really fulfilling. And I think teaching is a good example of that. I, you know, I thought I was going to go into a PhD, sort of decided to, to, you know, go into teaching because it you know, I, I didn't, I didn't think I was going to love it as much mm-hmm. as I, as I did. Um, and, you know, <laughs> sort of similar when I, I moved to rural Alaska, I, I sort of just did it, you know, 
without, I, I didn't think I was going to fall in love with this place. <laughs> and, and now it's been my home for over five years. And um, so I, I sort of doubt my own decision making, I think, in a way. Yeah, because it's interesting because you, you talk about doubting your decisions. But actually, as you describe some of the things that you could do, you you, know, you definitely have self-awareness. You you know, you know, the what the highs have been and you know why and you you kind of you understand that and I think listening to you sometimes I think we have thinking traps we describe them that get in our way and we need to reframe them into positive prompts I just wonder whether there is a thinking trap here which is almost like there's a right decision that I'm trying to find you know because again you sound like you're like I doubt my decision am I going to make the right choice and then there's a lot of pressure there and what is potentially the, the challenge or what is unrealistic is we never have perfect information. So I think what we want to do instead of using those doubts that you've got that are really normal and that everybody has, maybe we just need to reframe those doubts rather than thinking my doubts are going to mean I make a bad decision to my doubts are really useful data. And I think when we use our doubts as data, it means that we don't ignore or avoid them. So I'm not suggesting we sort of uh, shut them off or pretend they don't exist because I don't think that helps us either. And so that might just be a useful, just useful framing to maybe start to think about. Think about um, what do you need to let go of and what do you need to hold on to? It's descri- some, It was once described to me and it's really stuck with me as having a stubbornly adaptive mindset. And I think that is a really good way of framing the mindset that we need when we're trying to squiggle, particularly in new directions. I don't know if any of that feels helpful. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I love the idea of a stubbornly adaptive mindset. Maybe if we were sitting here this time next year, like what would you like to be able to tell me that was true? I think I, I would want to be able, I don't know what the answer is, but I would want to mm-hmm. be able to tell you that I made a decision about this next step without comparing myself to other people. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I would love to come back and tell you that I made a decision without it being influenced by fear. That's Meredith talking to author and podcaster Sarah Ellis. I'm certainly rooting for Meredith to make the right decision, one that brings her personal satisfaction in her work and grants her the time, flexibility, and resources to connect with her family and community. But that may not happen, of course. There's a lot of human frailty in decision-making and over a 25-job career, a decent chance of missteps. We're not likely to solve for human error, but we can reduce the penalties for it by providing more educational and training support and a step up for those disrupted by the economic and technological upheavals that characterize our age. If we do that, the concept of longer and more diverse careers may actually be more exciting and rewarding than simply exhausting. The producers of Century Lives are Carrie Thompson, Aaron Slomsky-Pritz, and Cameron Chertapian. Music for this episode was provided by Ramteen Arablui and Audio Network. Century Lives is a production of the Stanford Center on Longevity, where our mission is to support ideas and research so that century-long lives are healthy and rewarding ones. You can find out more about us at longevity.stanford.edu. Support for the Stanford Center on Longevity comes from the Annenberg Foundation, dedicated to addressing the critical issues of our time through innovation, community, compassion, and communication. Thanks for listening. I'm Ken Stern.